Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is an interview with a very special guest, Brian Sugar. Brian Sugar is the managing partner and founder of Sugar Capital. They invest in the future of commerce. So they have invested into brands you may have heard of, like Brightland, Caraway, Kinship, Feastables, Starface, Omsom, and more. And they invest in commerce enablement. So a lot of the software tools and platforms you might have heard me talk about on TikTok. Before going into the world of venture with Sugar Capital, Brian was actually the CEO and founder of Pop Sugar, which you may have heard of. He founded Pop Sugar in 2006 with his wife, Lisa Sugar. They raised capital from Mike Moritz of Sequoia Capital. They eventually merged with Group 9 Media in 2019, and then Vox Media acquired Group 9 in 2021. Before going into the world of media with Pop Sugar, he was the chief web officer at Kmart, the VP of e-commerce at J.Crew, and he even started his first startup in 1994 called Neptune. So Brian has had a long history of being at the intersection of content and commerce. So it was an honor and a privilege to get to pick his brain about the evolutions he has observed, how he thinks about investing into consumer brands and commerce enablement today as a VC, advice that he has for founders navigating these really tough times, and so much more. I'm super excited to share this episode with you guys. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend. And without further ado, here's the conversation with Brian Sugar. We are here today with Brian Sugar. He is the founder and managing partner of Sugar Capital. He is the co-founder of Pop Sugar, a women's media company that you have most likely heard of. And he has invested in tons of different startups and brands and on the e-commerce enablement side that you have undoubtedly heard of, especially if you follow my TikTok. So I am super excited to have Brian here because he has been in the industry and building as an operator since the 90s. So we have a lot to talk about, Brian. Well, thanks for having me. I was excited for today. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I actually did want to take it back to when you founded your first startup, Neptune. I saw that there was actually a Kara Swisher profile of you from 1996 in the Washington Post almost 30 years ago. So take us back to Neptune and walk us through some of the highlights of your career so we can just get a lay of the land of your backstory. Okay, this is going to start in 1994. So I don't know where you were in 1994. I was in Washington, D.C. going to the George Washington University, and I was interning at a ad agency called Abramson, Ehrlich and Mainz. And my father worked at AT&T and he was in charge of law and government affairs. Essentially, AT&T was broken up in the 80s by the government. And his job was to communicate with lobbyists and the government what new technology was AT&T working on. Anyway, he showed me a bunch of different things. He was in D.C. at the time. And I remember him showing me Mosaic, the first browser. And I was like, holy crap, every one of our clients at our ad agency are going to need websites. I was super excited. And I wrote my first and last business plan that was like words and sentences and paragraphs. You know, now they're just like slides and now memo. I don't know, whatever. And I presented to the executive owners of the ad agency. And I remember I bought a new suit and I was like drowning in the suit. It was like too big you know, because I was like 20 years old or whatever. Anyway, they said, no, they're like, we don't believe in the internet. We think that it's going to be like CD-ROMs. And I was so crushed. And I remember I was so emotional at that time that I was afraid that if I spoke 
back that all of my shields would go down and I would start crying. Like I had like the lip quiver, you know? So anyway, I went back and I was kind of bummed and I had a conversation with my father and he's like, you know what? Why don't you take your last years of tuition? Mom and dad will give it to you as a loan or an investment. And why don't you go start your business? And I was like, wow. And my dad was like really big on being an entrepreneur. Like he worked at et t for like 25 years and his sister was an entrepreneur in the 70s. He was very clear that entrepreneur entrepreneurship was really big and he was sort of risk averse. So anyway, I started Neptune, which was a dial-up ISP in the Washington, D.C. area. It provided internet access to students that were off campus. And during nights and weekends, I built mock e-commerce websites, mail order catalog websites onto CD-ROMs and FedEx them out to the world. It's pretty timely. Two weeks ago, this awesome J. Crew book came out called Kingdom of Prep. You should totally buy it. It's really great. I was hired by the J. Crew family. They saw my CD-ROM and I was hired by the J. Crew family to go to work in New York and put the catalog online. That was after selling. So started Neptune in 1994, sold it 18 months later. But then during that time, went to go work at J. Crew, And that was in the fall of 96. And in June of 97, jcrew.com was alive with the first catalog on it. And it was a fantastic experience. Went through all of that. TPG came in and bought it. And then got recruited to be a founder of something called Blue Light, which was Kmart, Martha Stewart, and Yahoo getting together in 2000. A free ISP by Yahoo. The homepage was the Kmart store selling Martha Stewart and other great brands. Did that for a little while, then launched Estee Lauder online, which was a site called gloss.com. It was all the brands. Then got a bit bored with e-commerce and launched an IPTV software company, which I sold to a company called Two Wire during the triple play world. I don't know if you remember this, but in the early 2000s, it was all about the triple play data, voice, and video that you would get from your service providers. And I was the video portion of it. Anyway, got to work at Two Wire. The founder of Two Wire was one of the most amazing mentors I've ever had. His name is Brian Hinman. He started PictureTel, the first video conferencing company, and Polycom. You got to know Polycom. It's the triangle speakerphone. Come on. No? No. Four to 92. Well, there's Polycom still alive in the world. Anyway, it was a great mentor, amazing engineer. We sold that business to AT&T. A year prior to that, my wife started blogging on a domain you may have heard of called Pop Sugar, which I registered years prior. And then we launched it as a real business in April of 2006. We took our first round of financing for Michael Mortz at Sequoia Capital. We were off to the races. We acquired a small business and grew it called ShopStyle, which is a fashion search engine. We launched a beauty line at Ulta, an apparel line at Kohl's. We launched a fitness gear line at Target. We launched Pop Sugar Playground, an amazing two-day festival in New York. In 2019, merged it with a company called Group 9 Media, which was a great brand holding company led by Ben Lear with great brands like The Dodo and now this and Thrillist and so on. Last year, we merged Pop Sugar Group 9 with Vox Media, creating one of the largest private media companies out there. Very happy where Pop Sugar is now and launched Sugar Capital in September of 2020. So I'll kind of pause there. But, you know, that was kind of 25 years, you know, riding the internet wave through e-commerce 1.0, did a whole bunch of media stuff. It's been a lot of fun. But now I'm on the other side doing early stage investing, which I absolutely love. I have a million questions. But first, I want to ask, did you like to tinker with stuff with technology when you were a kid? Is that how you got into what you got into when you were 20 years old? Always, always tinkering. And, you know, the interesting thing is when I think back, you know, the first computer I got was an Apple II Plus and then an Apple IIe. But when I got the Apple IIgs, that, like, changed my life. And the GS standard for graphics and sound. 
And I really liked using computers to make beautiful things or very useful, delightful things for consumers. I don't know. I always gravitated to that. You know, I ran like a small bulletin board service, a digital bulletin board service when I was a teenager. Always have been tinkering and building and viewing source and learning how other people build stuff. And, you know, I don't have a college degree. I did not go to school as an engineer, but I've, you know, learned it. Like when we launched J.Crew, there was no such thing as Shopify. So we had to actually build an e-commerce website from scratch. And, you know, working with an extremely talented technical partner on that, I was able to make it look beautiful and push the boundaries of what we wanted to look like because, you know, the J.Crew catalog has always been beautiful. The typography, the photography, everything. And I really love that part of making technology and digital actually work for that. So every weekend I'm building something, launching stuff just to keep abreast of what's going on. And I love it. I'm always thinking about the new thing, whether it be ChatGPT or bookmarking service or there's this really cool thing that I built maybe in the first summer of COVID. I got this big e-ink screen, black and white. It's like a big Kindle. It's in the kitchen. And every night at midnight, it grabs a PDF of the next day's New York Times front page. And then you see that in the kitchen. So it's kind of cool. You can't interact with it. It's like a piece of art, but it changes every day. You know, just constantly always building and tinkering and having fun and hoping one of my three daughters absorb some of the code during breakfast as they sit next to me. <laughs> You've been involved in commerce since you were creating those catalogs, right? On CD-ROMs and then you joined J.Crew. It's the longstanding involvement you've had in the world of e-commerce and now direct-to-consumer. Is that from this bigger interest in creating delightful consumer experiences with technology or do you specifically like e-commerce? I think I really like consumer and I think I really like using technology to make the consumer experience more delightful and more efficient and all of that. I mean, let's be honest, the last 25 years, everything that's made consumers more happy has been centered around getting it faster, more customized. You know, it's been using the laptop, the cell phone. It's always about technology. So that's always been my gravity. As I get older, I would say that my gravity is being pushed more and more to the technology more of the picks and shovels that make the consumer brands work even better. So like at the fund, about 20% of our capital goes to investing in direct consumer brands and about 80% goes to the technology, picks and shovels, enablement, omni-channel technologies that help make that world better. I've heard you describe your split of 20% direct consumer brands and then 80% infrastructure as investing in brands as customer acquisition for investing in the infrastructure. That to me is so fascinating. When you raised your fund, is that how you kind of positioned it to LPs? Yeah, I mean, we we kind of positioned it like, listen, I was one of the first checks in at a company called Everlane, a great apparel company, sort of J. Crew 2.0. I've been an independent board member there since 2011. I have a front row seat to the challenges and opportunities that new consumer brands have. I use that positioning and that view to make fantastic, or I hope at least fantastic technology investment decisions. It's much easier to know if something is a nice to have or must have. It's much easier to know if it's a feature or an entire company. And our entire diligence process when we're working with software companies is around thinking like a consumer brand and how would they use it? What KPI is it gonna affect? How important is this gonna be? How long of a sale is it gonna be? When a recession hits, is this something that's gonna stay or is it gonna 
go. So that's always been our differentiator between a lot of consumer investors and technology investors. The fact that we do both and sit right in the middle. And, you know, listen, for brand investing, we have a significant track record, both with other great brands and then with what we like to think we did with Pop Sugar. I mean, we really didn't have a large marketing budget whatsoever. And we built Pop Sugar before there was mobile phones. And then we adapted to mobile and then social and TikTok and so on and so forth. So I think we have a great view, especially my wife, Lisa, when we work with the brands on how to take advantage of new technologies that are happening or new platforms. So we think we have a distinct alpha and advantage in investing in the consumer retail space, mostly in the picks and shovels and the technology side. I want to take it back to the early days of Pop Sugar. So you took funding from Mike Moritz, who is a legendary Silicon Valley investor, probably one of the most legendary Silicon Valley investors of the past several decades. How did you position Pop Sugar to Sequoia? Because sometimes the consumer-facing story of a brand is not always what you're selling to investors. And I consider Sequoia to be great at spotting the tectonic shifts that are going to happen in society, basically. So what was that like? It was fast. I think Michael saw a significant shift, just like we saw, which was there was some pattern recognition, which is it was clear that mail-order catalogs came online. Like that was clear. That was the 90s. It was also clear that magazines hadn't figured it out yet. You would go to a website, a magazine website like People Magazine, and you would go in the morning and it would look their headlines and whatever. Then you go back after lunch and you know what? The magazine website looked exactly the same. So what do they just train you? You don't need to come twice a day. My wife was very clear, which is like, we're going to have a minimum of three or four updates during business hours to get people addicted. And our original slogan for Pop Sugar was insanely addicted. And that's because a lot of people would just be addicted to it. Every time they came to Pop Sugar, there was a new story that Lisa and then eventually the team sort of churned out. So when we set out and went to go raise during that time, and it's a long time ago and a lot of things have changed, but our vision was we were going to be the next Condé Nast, but on the internet, digital ready, using technology. And this is just when the blog format came. So it's just like you sort by recency. Remember those days? And you get to the bottom and you're like, okay, that's where I left and I come back. You know, that doesn't really exist anymore because the algorithms have figured out if you see something already, so you're going to stop and they want you really addicted. But that was kind of the, the very beginning. But I think the bigger vision that we had was that we were going to use this audience, the Pop Sugar audience, to be at the nexus of content to commerce, that we were going to be able to be the best friend, your girlfriend, that's your best friend, that's going to suggest the right shoes to buy or the right fitness workout to do or the right supplement or whatever, just be at the center of that. And a year after we started Pop Sugar, a little bit less than a year, we acquired a small company called ShopStyle, which was at the time a fashion search engine with a fantastic product-led CEO who I'm very close with to this day. We've done multiple companies afterwards. In fact, his son used to be an intern at Pop Sugar. His name is Matt. And Matt launched an awesome app called Locket, which is an also very addictive new app that people love. But anyway, we bought ShopStyle and we used that to drive millions, tens of millions, then hundreds of millions of dollars to the Macy's, the Nordstrom's, the Neiman Marcus, the Everlane's, the J. Cruz. And then we used that technology to power Time Inc. and Condé Nast. So we were getting into the technology aspects of affiliate commerce. And I think when we started to think about the future of Pop Sugar, we thought a lot about it like, you know, a big media company with diverse revenue streams. And at the core was a really big audience. But how do we turn that audience into great revenue streams. And obviously many, many things have changed since that 
vision and things are just moving so rapidly. I think the advent of the social networks has really put a lot of pressure on digital media companies as well as influencers. And I think, you know, over time, advertisers want to work with bigger, fewer partners. And that's why in 2015 and 16, my belief was there's going to be massive consolidation in the digital media space. So we sold ShopStyle to Rakuten in 2017 and we merged PopSugar with Group 9 in 2019. And they both now are much bigger places and they'll be long lasting brands forever. I think a standalone, it would have been extremely challenging. But what a great ride. I mean, that was a fantastic 15, 16 years. It was really great. And I miss the team and all the people that we used to work with. But now I'm a coach. I used to be a player and now I'm a coach. And I like being a coach. But you also tinker. You also build. I do. Yeah, I do. It's interesting because people talk about the intersection of content and commerce as if it's a new thing. But you've literally been at that intersection watching it evolve over the last three decades. So it's definitely not new. It's just been evolving into something new constantly. I might be biased, but I see the future of that intersection as being really creator-led. You have invested in Feastables, for example. What Mr. Beast has built is a really good example of that. What's your take on the future of media and also the future of where media intersects with commerce? You know, when we look at investing on the commerce side, like commerce brands, one of the key things we're thinking about is that the brand really needs to have borderline illegal distribution, which basically means they can acquire customers much less than their competitors, like Mr. Beast, right? I think we've all learned, and this is like a broken record, but the playbook of the teens, you know, of the Allbirds and some of the brands from 10 years ago or whatever, it just doesn't work. You can't make the math work and acquiring customers off of Facebook or Instagram and having the LTV be at a certain point. It just doesn't necessarily work. So I think influencers like Mr. Beast in the creator world, as you speak about, give you an advantage around this borderline illegal distribution, which enables you to basically have much, much lower customer acquisition. However, I'm concerned with where are we on the roller coaster or the trend line of influencers and creators? Are we still going up? Are there still going to be the skims of the world and the Mr. Beasts and the prime drinks and the so on and so forth? Or are consumers wising up to that and they're thinking about, you know, more authentic relationships and are the creators and influencers, is it their number one thing that they really want to do or do they really just want to be ultimately a celebrity? You know, there's a lot of incentive alignment that it needs to happen. And I think there's obviously great examples. I mean, Ryan Reynolds clearly has some a playbook that I think we all envy across the board as, as celebrity and entrepreneur. I mean, what he's done has been absolutely fantastic, but I don't know how repeatable that is for other people. And it's been an interesting watch. I have a very close friend that's launching a creator-led studio for brand generation. And we talk about this all the time, but we'll see. It's clear though, on the flip side of that, brands need to have, like their product strategy needs to be omni-channel from the get-go. Like they have to envision their product being able to be sold at a CVS or a Walmart or a Target or Williams-Sonoma or wherever it may be. That needs to be baked into it because DC only brands is going to be a really, really difficult challenge. Not to say you can't do it, but it's going to be fairly difficult. I mean, the best example right now as I see of DTC only is really Jones Road and what they've been able to do. But of course, behind that is a massive massive celebrity in Bobby Brown and her authenticity is so real and so right. And the team 
that she's assembled underneath her. I mean, they just execute flawlessly. And I believe that they're opening up their first store. If I've watched some, you know, social media properly. So it's an interesting time where you see so many interesting things around that nexus of constant commerce. Sometimes I feel like I'm really jaded, like I'm stepping over the carcasses of the various different, I'm trying to think of Caboodle and Polyvore. And I see new versions getting created of the same thing. I always loved Polyvore. And I know that Polyvore wasn't highly converting, but it was highly engaging. I don't know if you remember what Polyvore was, but you know, I just saw like two or three examples of that. And I'm like, well, wait, why is this one going to be more successful than the prior one. So a lot of repeating. There's a lot of repeating now that I've seen a few patterns and, you know, it's clear I'm now in my third economic downturn in my life. The first one being the dot-com, then the 08, that one was tough. And this one just right now feels like the toughest, but, you know, I'm sure five derivatives now will we'll look back on this and say, you know, it was pretty equivalent to 01 in the 08, 09 world, but you read Twitter and it's basically over. There's a lot of catastrophizing on social media, certainly. And it's a really tough time. I'd be really curious to hear what you think. I actually started a newsletter recently. I do a little part at the beginning of each newsletter with my takes on a given topic that people ask me about. And I did one on celebrity brands and influencer-led brands yesterday. I'd be super curious to hear your thoughts. On it. But high level, it sounds like we align. The way I think of it is when there's a new trend, like attaching a celebrity face as a founder to a brand, or right now, generative AI or whatever it is, right? When there's a hot new thing, I think people over-index on emphasizing that thing and then not focusing on some of the other fundamentals that are going to create a robust business. And what I have seen in the celebrity-led brand and influencer-led brand space is people assume that they can kind of spin up a brand in a really hasty way and kind of skimp on the execution if there's a really famous name. My take is that moving forward, these brands are going to have to be just as good with just as good teams and just a strong execution as anybody else. But then you layer on that distribution unfair advantage of talent that is aligned with that product line and that brand story. And then you have a formula for success potentially. Potentially. Because then it's like, you know, when the business manager and like the CEO of the brand or the CEO of the brand that negotiates like, okay, celebrity will do four Instagram posts every week. And then maybe they don't, or maybe they do. All of a sudden it just becomes not real. It's very important that I think it is really celebrity led if they're involved. If not, it's really just a celebrity endorsement deal. And we've had those for 50 years. And I think it actually increasingly looks better if you just position it as the celebrity is an ambassador or endorsing it or as an investor. Because when you start to try to sell the story to consumers as, oh, Brad Pitt has this skincare line, it starts to feel disingenuous and consumers are smart. So no. I think that is also going to be a trend we see moving forward. But of course, there's been brands that, you know, what Julie and Brian are doing over at the Starface world and with some of the other brands like Julie, and they just have like brand after brand that they're launching. I mean, no celebrity attached to it, just keen zeitgeist understanding of what the generation wants with deep omni-channel strategy built in from the get-go. Those are some great brands that they're creating and there isn't anybody involved with it. You know, another company in our portfolio is a company called Caraway. The revenue on that business is just unbelievable. Mostly D2C with a little omni-channel partnership, but Jordan has done a phenomenal job in growing that without some of the things that we were just talking about. So it does exist. It's just not as easy as everybody's made it out to seem over the last decade. And I think only the best ones really, really work is what we're learning. 
And the other interesting trend I see sometimes, especially among consumer brands that are very heavy on the brand storytelling, is that even if you don't have a celebrity or influencer attached to it, there's emerged the strategy of the founder becoming de facto talent, right? Becoming the face of the brand and telling that story. But even then, that is not necessarily foolproof. I think sometimes it can expose you to greater scrutiny. And there are plenty of examples. My favorite one is Juru of Hero Cosmetics that have just absolutely crushed it without needing to be that face of the brand. Another great example is, I don't know if you know, she goes by SGT, but Sarah at Olive in June, when they first launched, she would do these Sunday sessions of doing nails together. And I would watch that. When I met Sarah, I don't know, in 2017 or 2018, I can't even remember now. Within five minutes, I was like, please just have a halfway decent idea because this is one badass entrepreneur that's going to be super successful. Then I would watch her on social, launching her brand and all that. And then there's Bianca at Birdies, who's done a really great job. I mean, I love when founders take ownership of their brand and they're not a celebrity and then maybe become one. But again, it's just getting back to what you're saying, which is the authenticity of the love for the brand. And unfortunately, there are founders out there that don't want to be the face of it. Jordan at Caraway is not the face of Caraway, but he's done a phenomenal job without doing that. And again, there's all these different like tools that you have in your tool belt that you want to try and work. And you just got to find the right one for your brand. It's not always just celebrity. You have an operator, you have worked with plenty of founders, you have invested in plenty of founders, and now you're a VC and you do this professionally. What are some of the signals that you look for in founders that you see as green flags? Green flags. And then red flags. We can talk about red flags too. So on the brand side, I found a pattern of mostly two people. Like if it's a partnership between two people, like take the sisters of Omsom, take Brian and Juliet Starface, you know, where there's a left brain and a right brain person. So there's a person that cares about margin, operations, customer service, inventory. And there's a person that cares about typography, color, font, TikTok, Snapchat, the brand. It's rare to find those two in one. So when they're spread across two people, you know, that's something very, very important. The second thing is definitely domain expertise. I mean, Jordan at Caraway has been doing this for most of his life, you know, making pots and pans and other kitchen things. So he knew exactly the product that he wanted to build for himself and for the customers that he worked with before. So there's a lot of domain, you know, experience. And then there's just like, I don't know how to put it into words, but you get on the phone with someone, you get on a Zoom or you go for a walk with them and you just get that level of tenacity that you just need as an entrepreneur. And like that empathy that you get and that EQ that's just off the charts, like you totally have it. Like you are absolutely a go-getter, founder, entrepreneur type. So you'd be the type of person, if I sat down with you, I'd be like, please have a halfway decent idea. A, the idea won't be the same six months, 18 months from now. It's really about that person and their drive and their tenacity and how they treat other people. And all that. So it's kind of hard to put that into a bucket, but it's really some combination of a partnership around left brain, right brain, there's domain expertise, and then there's that X factor that a lot of people really, really talk about, but you just know, like you just know. And, and I love that. I love when, when that connection's made and I'm sitting with a founder and it's just like, you just wanna be on the other side with them figuring out the problem and just make it so that all incentives are aligned so that we can just work together. Is there something that you used to not think was as important that now you highly value in founders or vice versa? Something that you used to think was important, but now you realize, oh, that's actually not as critical. I used to think that not understanding the business, like the financials, was okay. That you could hire a CFO and you can kind of figure that out. No way. 
no way. Like that has definitely changed with me. Maybe because, you know, as an operator, I always believed that amongst my executive team, that each one of those people would play in their roles. And if they weren't the CFO, it was okay that maybe they didn't understand all the levers of gross margin or whatever it may be, because we had somebody there. But if you're at the top of that org chart, you need to be able to go, I think, pretty damn deep on two areas, which sometimes make people, you know, awfully uncomfortable. That's the product and marketing side. And then it's the finance and operations side. And that's why a ton of times I like it when there's two people as co-CEOs, you know, doing that. So I didn't think that that was as important. Now on the flip side, one of the things that I thought was really important that I'm learning over time isn't, which is very interesting for me to admit, was like investing in a technology company where the CEO isn't the number one GitHub contributor to their project. In the early days, I'd be like, how could I invest in a technology company if the CEO isn't the one that's coding the project and building it? Well, what I've learned over time is, you know, that might get you an awesome M MVP, but you need to hire a team and scale a team to make a real business. And if you're the CEO and you're the number one person, you know, checking in the most amount of code, you're not building the team. And that's been a big change for me also. What are some red flags? The entrepreneur. And I think what's great about this time is we're not seeing entrepreneurs as much, but I meet with a lot of people that are like, I want to start a business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to work for myself. I mean, for me, there's like two things that you're doing as an entrepreneur. You're either solving a real problem and you created a real solution to that problem that people are going to buy. Or as you stated before, there's shifts going on and you see things in the future that's going to happen, but for other people. So you're taking advantage of a certain change, whether it be the internet with mail order catalogs or wh whether it would be putting TV over DSL lines and IPTV, or if it's like creating a media company online or Web3 or AI or like these huge changes. So you, you as an entrepreneur, you're easily either solving a problem with a solution or you're taking advantage of a certain time. It's not that you want to be an entrepreneur. Like when I grew up, I didn't even think I knew what that word was until like I was in college and my dad said to me, you should be an entrepreneur, start your thing, here's your tuition. Like, I don't even think I knew it. I just had it built in my DNA. You know, it was just like, I was a paper boy and I built software to manage my paper boy route. And then I had other paper boys using my pricing software. And then I would collect the money. They would do my delivery. Like I just started, you know, you just start solving problems. So I hate the entrepreneur. In the last 10 years, there was a lot of entrepreneurs because it was so damn easy to start a business. So damn easy. And I think now it's not as easy. So you're seeing, you know, a removal of the entrepreneur. The greatest part about this time is the founders that we're seeing really understand the risks that they're doing. And, you know, getting into business with an entrepreneur now is a lot different than getting into business, you know, in 2018 or 2019, because entrepreneurs, it's harder to see them, I guess. That's really interesting because I've observed something similar with becoming a creator. I think a lot of people glamorize becoming a creator. They want to be a creator. They want followers. They always ask me, how did you get started? But I never set out to become a creator. I was just thinking, oh, there's not a lot of content around female founded companies. And I wish this existed. And also my community of women DTC founders is asking me how to use TikTok. So I'm just going to roll up my sleeve and create the content I wish existed. And then it accidentally went viral. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm doing this now. And I think it's very similar for creators, which are essentially, you know, one person media companies. Listen, that was what my wife was. I mean, she was blogging her heart out because there wasn't new information on the internet about the latest movies, the latest trends in clothing, fitness, everything. She just felt like the information would come every other week or once a month. She was online and she wanted to see more of it. 
And she just started doing it. And like the word of mouth just took off. Like you're seeing on TikTok, it just happens. And that's the true entrepreneurs out there. Like they're taking advantage of a problem where they see a distinct opportunity to go after it. Not like, oh, I want to be a creator. So what's the formula to become a creator? Or I want to be an entrepreneur. How do I do that? Speaking of the fact that we are no longer in this frothy period of low interest rates and abundant access to capital, and it's super easy and glamorous to start something. Like you said, you've been through three downturns. What are your key pieces of advice to founders who are maybe in this time and really struggling and sure how to survive? I mean, operationally, just cut that burn as low as possible. Just cut that burn. And as hard as it is, and the feelings that you have towards the friends slash family that's part of your startup as you kind of see them that way, that burn is your life. And you got to get that to the lowest possible because we don't know how long this is going to go for. There's a ton of advice to be given here. It's really specific based on the founders like situation that they're in. But I suggest that everybody at the company changes their name from the CEO being chief executive officer to being chief EBITDA officer and understand what that means and be that through and through. You know, it's probably going to be a lot worse than you thought at first. And you just need to, you know, plan for the absolute worst times two and then hope for the best sort of thing, which is a bit standard advice. But give me a specific situation. I can give you like really specific advice. So let's say for consumer brand founders, direct consumer founders who are listening, they're asking themselves, what are some of the most direct levers that other founders in my space are pulling to cut that burn and to maximize runway and to just become more efficient. What are you seeing for direct consumer brand? Either you have some customer acquisition flywheel that you can figure out, and there's some great technology companies that you know we've invested in that can help you out, but that may be much harder to do and much harder to figure out. Maybe that's not part of your DNA. The place that I would really be optimizing is your retention and email and SEO, like back to eating your vegetables and the basics, because you have a team that wants to make the website and the experience better and wants to make social better. Like I would just focus as the store shopkeeper, make sure your shop is working and your consumer communication lifecycle is absolutely as perfect as possible. And you got to get back to the very, very basics. I hate to be a bit cliche, but it feels so easy to use ChatGPT and create one-to-one -one dynamic emails to every single one of your customers based on things that they bought prior and new things that may be available in your store. There's just a ton of things you could do and just be super creative and spend little to no money, but use your own hacking capabilities to sell more at the shop. I saw that you posted on Twitter back in December, basically summarizing the fact that you've made an investments in 2022 since May through December, and that you were seeing about a 15% drop in pre-money valuations and total round size was flat at 3.5 mil. Generally speaking, those rounds were into companies that have more traction than you were seeing the two years prior. So you were citing all these stats. Have you seen since then, since posting that in December, a few months ago, things continue to trend downward or do you feel like it's starting to bottom? Continuing to trend downward. I mean, what's happening now and you know, I'm very concerned for just founders out there is people when they raise their seed round and the traction and the numbers and the KPIs you needed for your series A, that has been dramatically moved out. And a lot of folks don't necessarily have the capital to get from where they are now to the new series A gold post over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, there's going to be a really, really bad 
reckoning of, I think, a lot of great startups going out of business. These are not going to be able to raise capital to get them through it because they didn't lower their burn as much as they could today. You know, the amount of time that we get to spend with a company now is so far greater and the amount of bootstrapping and traction that a founder needs to have to receive investment has dramatically increased. And that coupled with the difference between raising your seed and your A, the traction and milestones you need to have been moved, the value of capital in your business is worth like seven or eight times more than it was before May of last year. If you were fortunate enough to raise a war chest of money, that is worth a lot more now than it was before. And I hope founders realize that. And if you have a four or $500,000 a month burn, that's too much. I don't care what you're doing unless you're bringing in like that in net new ARR. I mean, you really need to start looking at the efficiency of, you know, how much you're burning versus how much net new ARR you're bringing in or net new customers into your business. But like chief EBITDA officer reporting for duty immediately. You're not the chief executive officer for the next 12 to 18 months because chief executive officers will go out of business. Chief EBITDA officers will be around to survive. For founders who are listening and want to get a little more context on what some of those benchmarks are or what traction looks like that they would need to have to raise a seed or a series A, can you offer any further specifics around that? There's many different factors, but you're not raising a series A on $1 million ARR anymore. You're just not. I mean, unless you did that in like, you know, three months and your growth is just unbelievable, or you've put together a founding team of like Jesus, Moses, and like, you know, other amazing biblical characters that form an amazing team. Like outside of those weird things, you got to be doing three to 5 million ARR growing at a clip, you know, the good old triple, triple, double, double, double sort of thing. You still need to be growing at that sort of speed to hit that. You know, on the consumer front, you need to be north of five to $10 million with really nice growth to raise a series A. And it was a lot different before, but you know, each scenario sort of is different. So these like blanket sort of things, it's hard to just be like, oh, seven and a half million in consumer sales or 4.2 ARR and boom, you have your A. It's sector specific growth. The margins are really important. There's just a lot going to it. But the overall traction, if you compare your business to the way it was since the first, you know, 2021, let's say, it's 30 to 40% further down the road than you were before. Can you walk us through how you evaluate? First, let's talk about the D2C side of things, and then the e-commerce enablement, which I saw you don't like that phrase, and you suggested Comtech, which I also <laughs> would sign that petition because I think that's way more elegant of a phrase. But can you walk us through how you evaluate something? And obviously, it's very case by case, but just high level. Well, just going on Comtech, it feels like an 80s like PC <laughs> store. So I don't know if that works. <laughs> that's true. Well, now that you say it. So say this again, you want me to evaluate? How do you diligence a, a consumer brand and also SaaS? company that is okay, got it. on the consumer front it's like category inventing category disrupting a great example of category disrupting is a company called hate which is in our portfolio it's a sexual wellness brand they're walmart and target whatever but they basically took a picture of the lubricant aisle at walmart and it was it was icky and disgusting i mean it's gross <laughs> and they basically cakeified it and made it how beautiful it could be and how approachable they really disrupted that category. So cake was a really great example of that. And then obviously we keep talking about it, but the third factor is just like, how are you going to grow 
at obscenely low levels of customer acquisition costs. And that's the story, the founder's story, whether it be celebrity or not, whether it be you really have a pulse on the zeitgeist of the generation, or you have some deep omni-channel strategy that, you know, the targets or Walmarts are going to need you. Like Walmart really fell in love with, you know, using cake, you know, to bring younger people into the stores and those things, category inventing, like a brand new category, category disrupting, or some borderline illegal distribution is kind of like the key when we sit back and look at it. Then there's the number one thing, 90% of it is the founding team. And do they have the left brain, right brain? We also look for incredible margins. We look for multiple purchases. Like oftentimes we won't invest in a business where it's a one-time purchase, like a mattress or something like that. That's just not necessarily our thing. We want consumables that you're going to come back for. We haven't done anything on like the alcohol side. I mean, things that are very competitive and it's like, we just tend not to want to invest in like catch lightning in a bottle and it sort of works. And then on the technology side, the Comtech, if you will, it really comes down to the problem that they're solving for the retailer or the opportunity they're taking advantage of. For example, I'll give a highlight of a company called Reflex, which is a newer investment that we've made. Reflex solves the problem of retail stores are having difficulty getting store associates in the store. Like store managers are spending a lot of time doing HR recruiting and like managing people's hours for greeters and cashiers and so on and so forth. So what Reflex is, is think DoorDash or Uber, but for you to work in retail. So they're live with, you know, Everlane and J. Crew and Faraday and Polo and Rag and Bone and a whole bunch of other ones. And you, if you wanted to grab, you know, four hours on a Saturday and work at the local Everlane, you can. You know, you take a quiz online, you get approved, and then you can go work there. And the cool thing is you actually get a discount also if you work so many hours. That's solving a real problem. Like in the post-COVID world, people don't want to commit to like 12 to 20 hours at a retail store. So it's flexible for the retailers and it's very flexible for the brand. So that's just an example of solving a real problem that's going on. And, you know, just the retail labor force in many areas, you see help wanted across the board. That's extremely important. So it's solving a real problem and it's a must, must have. It's not a nice to have. Like there are plenty of companies out there, like I guess in Web3 land, that's sort of like sort of nice to have and innovative and forward thinking. But as we get closer and closer to potentially a recession, now you have the chief EBITDA officer in charge over at the brands. The chief EBITDA officer is going to be making decisions that are different than the chief executive officer. And they're going to be making decisions that decrease their burn over time. And you just need to be software that solves a real problem and like a part of must have versus a nice to have. And, and it's hard to discern when you're inside of it, but, but that's our job as investors. How do you discern between what's sort of like excessively hyped? Maybe there was a lot of froth in the Web3 crypto space, some interesting applications, but also a lot of fluff. In AI, my prediction is there's just such a flocking to it that initially people won't be able to discern the signal from the noise, but then eventually we'll figure out where the real applications are. Who knows? How do you as an investor stay true to sort of your own criteria, your own integrity of vision without getting caught up in the hype, basically? Just curiosity, learning, meeting, studying, just studying and learning and meeting with every single founder. Like we as VCs are not judged by our batting average. So we can go to at bat as many times as we want. And we can pass as many times as we want. You know, we are judged on the hits that we have, the home runs, the triples, the doubles, so on and so forth. So I am always very eager to meet and learn from the younger founders out there and have real hearty discussions that you ask because 
you know, the real entrepreneurs are starting businesses right now, not the entrepreneurs, but the real entrepreneurs, you can have this type of conversation with them. Be like, why do you believe you're going to dedicate the next 10 to 15 years of your life to do this? Why do you believe that this warrants your time? And when you start talking founder to founder to someone, I've been in the very, very dark places of being a founder through layoffs and bad times and things don't go in your way. Like it is one of the hardest jobs in the world to be. And, you know, having that frank discussion about, oh, you're a generative AI for e-commerce product images that change the background or whatever. Like, and there's some really amazing individuals in that space and great companies, but it just feels like there's no moat, there's no barrier to entry. And so we have to be very mindful of that. And I think what you do is you start to learn and meet and understand the talent. Right now, it's like a first grade soccer game and everybody's going to the soccer ball and the soccer ball's AI and everybody's playing with the AI. But as time progresses and the founders get older, the first grade soccer game becomes a high school level and people are playing their positions and you can see the game and the players and the teams actually unfold and knowing the talent early on and getting to know them as they iterate through their various different ideas and you build relationships with them, some of them are going to land on some really great ideas. I don't think anybody really necessarily has yet in the application of this necessarily. I think there are some, but like there's a hackathon tonight. I'm going to try to get to that. I went to one last week. I'm going to them meeting with people. I built my own little thing that I put out there to get feedback. I mean, you know, so I'm over there with the soccer ball and playing also, but you know, I'm kind of the coach with the whistle and I, I want to meet and play and learn. And listen, I thought Web3 was kind of interesting. I mean, we invested in a company called Novel that was a D to C bridge for Web3 that enabled NFT gating. If you had a board ape, it is what it is and it's great. And they're going through a very interesting change in what they're doing. And it's pretty exciting, but we weren't necessarily all over Web3 because it was like, it was hard for me to build anything in it and be delighted in it as my tinkerer side of me. But the AI stuff, I mean, I've built some really fun little things with my kids and with SMS and all sorts of stuff, just the fun. And there's clearly stuff there. It's super fun, but we'll see. So it's a little early to say who's going to emerge as the key players as far as AI applications in commerce. But what do you broadly see as being the shift that will result in commerce as a result of AI? Or is it also a little early to discern I mean, I think it's a little bit early, but I think that the brands that took advantage of digital first, like Pop Sugar, then the brands that took advantage of the social networks, then the brands that took advantage of TikTok, and now the brands that take advantage of AI, you're just going to have an advantage over your less technically advanced brands. So I think there's a moment in time that brands will be able to use AI and technology companies will be able to use AI to take advantage of their competitors. Like there's a TikToker named Rachel who's all over AI, right? She's awesome. She's taking me through her workflow of like using AI to help her make her content. So she clearly has an advantage over some of the other TikTok people out there. And she's like a two-person show, like churning out some amazing content. So I think AI is another technology advancement that you use and you use it better than your competitors and faster, and you'll have a competitive advantage. Like Everlane had a competitive advantage over J. Crew because it was bigger on Instagram for many, many years before J. Crew probably even knew what it was. I'm sure there's now, you know, Everlane 3.0 that maybe will take advantage of AI before Everlane does. So it's always the younger, faster, more technically advanced generation that takes advantage of this to sell more, be more, and ultimately delight the customer better through technology. So it sounds like 
if I were to extrapolate that into advice for founders, uh, especially of consumer brands today, you would say just stay abreast of what's happening. Keep looking for ways you can incorporate it to make yourself more effective and more efficient. Yes. Wow, wow that was like five minutes. I know. I know. I feel like I... I it's it like a time warp. Well, this was great, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're very good at this. Yeah. You should continue doing it. I love doing it.